I want to start off this morning with a confession. All right? What do you guys think? A confession from a pastor. So you're sitting there, what? Okay, okay, we got some brave, brave folks here. I'm not going to confess any major sin. Um, I'm not going to cry like Jimmy Swaggart. Uh, but my confession is this, and it has everything to do with what we're talking about. Um, you guys, there have been times on my journey that when people ask me what I do, um, I'm a little hesitant to tell them because I know immediately in some places what that brings up for people. And here's what I think a lot of people think when you say the word pastor. Somebody that is totally disconnected from the way the world really is. It's someone that hides out in their bedroom and with their Bible and they really have no clue of what's going on in the world around. They don't really understand current events. Um, in fact, in, in some ways, they're trying to remove themselves from the world and distance themselves from the world. And for some people, like, how is that helpful to us? Because we live in the world world. I'll give you an example of this. Um, the other night at the baseball field, there was some conversation among parents on how rowdy these games get. One of the parents goes, oh, George, you're a pastor. You're probably not going to like this. Like, I'm like so fragile that I can't be around people that are vulgar or, you know, have this conflict. And so there, I, I don't, I, I'm just being honest with you. That bothers me because Nick told me this morning when he came in, oh, you're such a kind man. I don't want to be kind. I want to be provocative. Like, I, I, want to, I want my life to matter for something that makes a difference in, in people's lives. I want to be engaged in the real world and what's happening in real people's lives, both the good and the bad. And so sometimes the word pastor is a code word for someone that's insulated from the real world. And the other thing is, is sometimes we have this expectation of listening to people like me that they're not actually going to challenge us in some way. They're not going to talk about the things that we're actually thinking about all throughout the week. Um, so I'm just being honest that in some ways that word pastor has got way too tame. And if you know me, um, you know, I don't know my animal spirit, I don't think it'd be a tiger. In fact, when I was a, a boy, um, our mascot was the tigers. And uh, the coach told me one time, growl like a tiger. And I went, rawr. He goes, no. Someone come help George learn how to growl like a tiger. But my point is this, that deep inside, I'm soft and I'm full of love and grace. But there's also something within me. And I think within all of us, we want our lives to matter. And we want to be in tune in some way with making the world a better place. Making the internal world within ourselves better and making the world around us a better place. So that's just my confession to start off. Here's, here's why. Because we're talking about something ancient and old. This series is Ancient Future. And uh, I want to look at the most ancient things, the oldest things in our faith, and go, do they still matter? And if they do matter, what do they say to our modern world? So if I wanted to be tame, I wouldn't do that. Like if I wanted to be safe, I wouldn't take that risk. Now, um, a while back, it was a couple years ago, uh, I was listening to uh, a guy on world religion. His name's Houston Smith. And he's one of the leading scholars on world religions. And I just absolutely love this guy because he comes from a Methodist background is devoutly devoted and grounded in his Christian faith, but he doesn't stand against or in 
opposition to other faiths. In fact, he takes his Christian faith into some of these world arenas and just learns and shares his faith in these places. And that inspires me. You should know this about me as a pastor. Um, uh, one of my friends at the United Methodist Church here, Brian, just invited me into an interfaith uh, group that meets here in Bellevue. I'm going to join it without any fear that the distinction of my Christian faith is going to be watered down or taken away. Um, in fact, I think we can ground ourselves more deeply and root ourselves in our Christian faith and be contrary to things around us. So uh, I'm the kind of pastor that is going to find myself outside of just the Christian circle and, and going, because I've been like this since I was a boy. Can this Christian faith stand up in the face? So when I was a boy, what I thought a lot of was protect your faith, guard it. You know, it's not safe out there in the secular world. And certainly don't listen to your biology teacher because he's going to, you know, he's going to lead you in some, some things that are going to take you out of your Christian faith. My experience was the exact opposite, um, that I was grounded in something that mattered to me, and yet my biology teacher was teaching me something that was actually deepening my faith. Okay, so here's where we've been. Um, Karen, if you put up, these are the words that we've been covering so far. We believe in God, the Father, Almighty, and we talked about this right from the very beginning, and to believe in God is to uh, have this parental kind of relationship with God, because it's a, it's a loving God. And the word Father comes before Almighty, so we can trust in that love, and the Almightiness is God's love for us. We talked about maker of heaven and earth, and I shocked some people, and I challenged some of us. It was comforting. For some of us, it was challenging. But we talked about an evolutionary creation that for me, um, uh, it, it appears that the scientists are right, that there seems to be this long process of creation, and perhaps God works in that, and God doesn't get robbed of being the maker or the creator if there's this longer process to how we create. So these things actually go hand in hand, so we kind of explored that. What does that mean in the modern world with the science we have to call God the maker? Last week we talked about we believe in Jesus, and um, today I want to go a little further. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, or look at how some of these words um, can be meaningful to us. Okay, here is where I want to start. Uh, I think for some of us, kind of what frustrates me about the notion of what people think about a pastor, I think some of us have a notion of that's the way Jesus was like isolated from what was happening in the world that he taught in and lived in. But can I tell you, most of what Jesus was aimed at was Jerusalem. And it was the religious, the economical center. It was the political epicenter. Like everything that mattered to that first century world was happening in this place called Jerusalem. It would be like taking um, uh, Times Square in New York City with uh, Las Vegas, and uh, what, what else could we mix with it? How about um, Vatican? Putting all those things all together, where there's religious things, there's economic things that are going on, it's like right at the epicenter of that. This is who Jesus is actually engaging with, the world that he's engaging with, right in the center of all of that. And so, if Jesus can live in that and show us what it's like to be human 
and to have a relationship with God in the middle of that, then I think we as Christians can find ourselves not distancing ourselves more from the world, but actually stepping more fully and deeply into the world around us to bring good, to bring healing. So, this guy on world religion, Houston Smith, you want to go look him up, look him up, he's fascinating. Um, a lot of the studies he's done. But he says this, because he got asked one time by what are some of the disciplines that you do? He says, well, I pray the five uh, Hindu prayers. Um, I, uh, I do a yoga meditation, and then I read the Gospels every day. And so this person that was interviewing him said, oh, are you saying that everyone should do that? He goes, wait a minute, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. He said, I heard this wisdom from someone. It is better to, if you're drilling for water, it's better to drill one well 60 feet deep than to drill 10 wells six foot deep. So here's what he's saying in that. He's saying that we could go deeper and deeper into our tradition, which is Christian. And for some of us, we grew up in traditions maybe where we were disappointed or hurt or wounded in some way, maybe rejected or found that it wasn't meaningful. Um, And so for some of us, that could be a struggle to go, is there something within this Christian faith that still matters? Because maybe just the way it got reflected to me wasn't entirely the way it was supposed to be. And there are some of us that come from traditions where it really mattered, and we're still holding on to that today. So here's what I think this scholar and this wise man is saying, that to be Christian is to go deeper and deeper into our tradition and test it. Allow it to be tested in the marketplace, in the world, in the places where we live. I found the only way for faith to truly be alive is to allow it to be challenged, allow it to be tested in these places. Um, Maybe you'll be surprised by this, but a couple, well, probably six or seven years ago, I did this thing called, um, uh, hold on a second, it was called uh, Atheism for Lent. And what I did for Lent is I read some of the top atheists and allowed it to challenge my faith. And I had friends that were going, what are you doing? I'm going, because if this thing is going to be real, if it's going to be something that I'm going to live, then I want to go as deep down as I could go into it and I want to open it up and allow it to be challenged by everything. Because what I want is something that is worthy of my heart, something that is worthy of my love, something that is worthy of me trusting in with everything that I am. And I don't know how we could do that if we're so fearful of something else wrecking it or destroying it. Um, That's just not been my experience. So if you're here this morning and... Uh, you're fearful of that, please talk to me. Um, maybe you might experience what I experienced. This, uh, moving into these realms and opening my heart to these things to allow that thing to be challenged within me has only made me desire to go deeper into it. And I could tell you this, that the Christian tradition, even when I explore all the different things that I explore, um, I have found nothing more beautiful Nothing more worthy of trusting in that story than the Christian faith. So I just want to be honest 
of where I'm coming from. I'm not coming from someone that has isolated myself and hidden and is trying to protect something. I found that this thing can stand on its own. And I want us to maybe believe in that and trust that a little more. Okay, so we believe in Jesus Christ. Do you realize that Christ is not Jesus' last name? (laughs) Um, I don't know if that's news for some people, but no, Christ is this title that is given to him. And so Christ, by the way, Jesus is a sacred name to us, but you know one of the most common names in the first century was? It was Jesus. Like, so it's become deeply sacred because Christ comes with this word Jesus. And, but it was a very common name in this first century. So these first followers um, are beginning to awaken like this Jesus He's more than just a human being. And so they give him this Christ title, which is this word Messiah. So Christ is the Greek name for Messiah, which is the, the Hebrew name. And it's essentially this. It's that God's spirit is in and flowing through someone in a very unique way. So Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's people witnessing to this embodied presence and going, God is in him in a very special way. And in fact, we think he shows us actually who God is and what God is like. So the Christ name is just this beautiful name. Now I'm going to show you just a couple places in the text where this comes up. And here's the first one. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's asking them, hey, who's everyone saying that I am? But then he goes even a little deeper with them. And just imagine yourself in the presence of Jesus going, hey, who do you think I am? I've, I've pondered that before. Like, what would that feel? What would I say? Um, would I have an answer or would I go, I don't know. Um, but he asked his disciples this poignant question. Who do you say I am? And Peter responds like this. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So Matthew right here brings these words in, Messiah, which is, connects it to the Hebrew tradition because um, the whole Old Testament, they're waiting for this Messiah to come. And Peter says, you are what our Jewish brothers and sisters are talking about. You are that person, the Son of God. Now, watch this jump. Um, in Colossians, um, because uh, Peter's experiencing Jesus in this very particular way, like up close, like you're experiencing me right now, and like I would experience you. And, uh, but then there's also this universal way that Christ is experienced. So there's this actual person in the first century, which is Jesus, but then there's this Christ. There's something within this person of Jesus that is more than just what we have words to, to describe. And here's the way this writer says it, the Apostle Paul in Colossians. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. So I want you just to notice this. In Matthew, there's this very particular location of Jesus in a in a first century body. Um, 
And now, this writer here is talking about something that is much larger than just this experience of Jesus in a body. And he's saying that actually what Jesus is carrying is something that the, everything that was made was made through. And in him, all things are held together. So here's the way this person says it. And I think this is so helpful. To call Jesus Christ is to say that human categories are too small to contain him. And to affirm our faith, nothing less will do than to say that God was in Christ. And in Jesus, we are in the presence of God. And through him alone, we fully know God. So when the creed says we believe in Jesus Christ, this is what it's talking about. That somehow God was in Jesus in some beautiful way. And now the way that we know God is through looking at Jesus. The way we know if we're in God is going, well, do we look a little more like Jesus? Jesus shows us this invisible image. And the more we trust in that, the more we live in that, the more fully we are living in God. Okay, now I want to show you just two other places in uh, the book of Mark, um, which is the first gospel that is written. Now listen to the words of uh, the gospel writer here, Mark. He says, This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, which is Christ, the Son of God. So he starts off the book here, hey, this is what this whole thing is about. It's about Christ being in this person of Jesus who we believe is. I want to take you all the way to the end of Mark. And Jesus is on the cross. And people are mocking him. Um, The soldiers are like, you know, save yourself if you're the son of God. And Jesus is going through just this horrible experience. He's been rejected by his friends. Um, He's had a larger community say crucify him. He's not worth anything. He's just someone that's lying about the special relationship that that he has with God. And um, in verse 37 of Mark chapter 16, it says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last breath. I want you to listen to this. And when the centurion, who is a Roman, by the way, the Romans are who are crucifying Jesus because he's a threat. He's a threat to their power systems. He's a threat to the religious community. Someone claiming that he could give forgiveness of sin. Only God could do that. So he's a threat to everybody. So he's being crucified um, by these Romans. So at this point, when the centurion, who's a Roman, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. So here is a Roman who is, I think, undergoing a true conversion. A true conversion. Someone who is witnessing a human being at their absolute worst in the most broken state they could possibly be and go, I actually think he is the son of God. And because they're witnessing the way that he is dying. Now this, uh, stay with me just for a moment here. This is absolutely fascinating because I think what this centurion is experiencing is a completely different image of power. He works for Rome. 
He works for this guy named Caesar. Now, I want to give you some names that they would call Caesar and see if some of these trigger you and go, wait a minute, that's what they called Jesus. Yeah, yeah, look at this. Here's some of the things that, that the, the title of Caesar, the son of God. This is the way he was referred to. Uh, the bringer of peace. Um, the savior of the world. Okay, so this Roman centurion is working for the man who claims to be the son of God, the bringer of peace, the savior of the world, and who claims to have this unique kind of power to bring about all these things into the world. And he watches a man die and has a conversion moment going, wait a minute, I don't think Caesar is the Lord here. I think this guy on the cross might actually be who he says he is. This is absolutely fascinating. So what, what is happening in this conversion? By the way, here's, here's the way uh, uh, a Jewish historian speaks about this Roman empire in this Caesar. The Romans, they rob, they butcher, they plunder. And where they make desolation, they call it peace. Okay. How is this man being converted? He's being converted because... He, up until this point, had some kind of experience of what he thinks is bringing peace to the world. And how do the Romans bring peace? Through violence and through oppressive power. That's how they do it. Um, and the reason, how they keep peace is that if you don't go along with what they tell you, you must do, what do they do? They kill you. So peace is maintained by eliminating anyone that won't go along with the peace. So this is actually happening and the guy actually working for the guy that claims to be Lord because one of the things that they would say and they would find them on um, the money back in that day it would say Caesar is Lord Caesar is Lord so when Christians begin to say that Jesus is Lord and by the way it was the most common title given to Jesus over 600 times in the New Testament this is provocative this is not uh, safe. This is not, you know, doing the thing that is safest for all of us. This is going, we're going to stand up to the powers that be who are saying that Caesar is Lord, and we're going we're gonna to say, no, Jesus is Lord. And his lordship comes in just a completely different way. So what is this all about? This is about imagination. It's about imagination of what makes a better world. Is it peace coming through violence and oppressive uh, power? Or is it coming through sacrificial love? The Saturian witnessing this at a very deep place, I actually think it's that sacrificial love is the, the true Lord. Is it hate of your enemy? Or is it love your enemy and pray for them? What a lot of scholars say happened in this moment in history, that human beings got a whole new idea of power and how power could be wielded in the world. And I gotta be honest, I find myself very much like that centurion. I'm a Christian today because my conversion experience for me has somehow been seeing that Christ on a cross and going, I actually imagine that is a better world. Someone that doesn't, because 
here's the, here's the thing that is so maybe hard for us to understand is that all the people who are following Jesus in the day, they, they wanted a different kind of Messiah. You know the kind of Messiah they wanted? They wanted the one that was going to act like Caesar. They wanted the one that was going to raise up an army and face this power with violence and the same thing that was facing it. And so there's a lot of disappointed people and going, I'm not sure Jesus is the Messiah that we thought he was going to be because he was supposed to do it in a completely different way. But then there's a guy working for Caesar who witnesses all this and says, I think he is the son of God. So it does come down to imagine. And here's the last thing I want you to think about. Who makes a better Lord? Is it? Is it Caesar or is it Jesus? For me, it's Jesus. And it's the, the Jesus way. I hope it's the same for you. But Jesus is our vision of power. And it's a completely different kind of power that has forever changed the world. And if the world is going to heal in God's way, if it's going to be remade and redeemed in the way that God wants to redeem it, then we all need to be converted at the cross and see the power of love in a completely different way. So I would, just, I would say this, the title of Lord is the title of the God whose power is love. So when we say these words, Karen, if you'll put the beginning of the creed first, when we say these words, we believe in God, the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. We're talking about the title of Lord being the title of the God whose power is love. Now, here's the way this uh, writer said it. I want you guys to think about this, and then we're going we're gonna to sing. Faith in Jesus as our Lord finds expression in one's commitment to the ultimate authority of love to which he bears witness to the world. Without this commitment, listen to this, Lord is an empty title. Why is Jesus worthy of Lord? And why is this tradition worthy of us going as deep and as far into it and trusting it? It's because true authority comes through love, which is being brought into the world. But to make this faith commitment has vast practical implications. This is where it comes down to you and I today. If divine love embodied in Jesus is our ultimate authority, we will have to question the claims of all other authorities. If divine love embodied in Jesus is our ultimate authority, then that is what we allow to question every other authority. Now, here's what I know about me, and maybe it's true for many of you here in the room. I have lots of authorities. I have lots of convictions. I have lots of ways of seeing the world, ways of seeing other people, the ways of hoping that the world could be more, a better place. There's, I have so many things in my head, in my heart, but they all need to be submitted to this authority, which is this embodied love in a person of Jesus, who, because he embodies that love, makes him worthy of being called Lord. I'm going to invite you all to stand. I'm going to invite the band to come up. Um, this is just the way I wanted to end today. I want to end with a prayer. And I figured the best way we could do that is to sing it.
And I want to say this, because if this is true, and it's worthy of our trust in our hearts, um, there's something that's required of each of us, and it's exactly what we just read. It's like, are we willing to submit the authority of that love embodied in the person of Jesus who we call Lord to every other thing in our life? Can we begin to see every relationship, every, um, every issue of our heart or our heads? Can we begin to see the world through that? I think it's the only thing worthy of giving our hearts to. And we talked about the creed from the very beginning. It isn't just beliefs and ideas about God, but it's about deep down in here, do we trust this story? That it's a better one. Um, The Bible goes on to talk about we are beloved sons and daughters of God too. There is a special way that God is in Jesus and The creed says God's only son because there's something very special about that. But then there's also this sonship in us too. We're called sons. In fact, Jesus even begins, he calls us brothers and sisters and friends. So the unique thing about this kind of lordship is that Jesus looks at all of us and goes, hey, we're partners in this. We're friends in this kind of work in the world. And so maybe for some of us, maybe it's seeing Jesus like a big brother. And what are big brothers the best at is teaching us how a family works (laughs) Um, I'm the oldest so I don't know what it feels like I'm a big brother to other people but that's my heart like I want to show my brothers and sisters how a family works and how we do this together well Jesus is our big brother and um, I want you to just have an image of that in your head as you go today but here's the other thing is that a big brother like Jesus he all shows us what it means to live the divine life that we were made to live. So, would you just close your eyes? I want to pray a prayer, and then we're going to sing this song as a prayer from all of our hearts together to our big brother, Jesus, in trust. God, you... You know where each of us are. And I don't mean physically here. Yes, we're here, but... I mean in our hearts. Like, how much we trust this story. And even, God, how enduring this story has been in our lives and on our journey. Um, I pray whatever it is that we need to see in Jesus as Lord, that if we would open our hearts, God, you would reveal it to us. So that we could trust in this story and find that on any given day, sometimes it's a struggle. But God, we're a part of a larger family that's doing this together. And on the days when the struggle is the toughest, we don't have to carry this story alone. That you're with us, but God, we also have each other. And so there are people in this room, across the room, that maybe are stronger at different points that could, we can carry each other and we can carry this story together. And we can find that Lord belongs to the God whose power is love. Will you teach us that and guide us into it as we sing now? In Jesus' name.